Hello, and welcome to Gamification Unlocked, a show about real games and how we can use their techniques for learning and change. I'm Chad Hayfley. I do user experience work in academic libraries. And I'm Brandon Carper, a training designer. And today we have a lockpick episode where we examine a game and its techniques a little more briefly than we have with some of our other episodes so far. And today we're going to be taking a look at Super Mario Maker, or an aspect of it at least, looking at the, the onboarding process. Uh, so Brandon, you probably have experience with Mario, I would imagine. I do, since 1987. Oh man. Okay, well let's not dwell on how far in the past... 30 years ago! No, no, not quite, <laughs> 29. We're not, we're not quite up to 30 yet. Uh, so Super Mario Maker is a game for the Wii U, and it's essentially a Mario level editor and sharing platform. So any... 2D side-scrolling Mario level you've ever played, you can probably recreate in this game. But that's just the beginning. You can do multiple terrible, difficult variations on it. Uh, you were telling me about a favorite one the other day that you saw. Yeah, I was watching a guy online, and I guess as you're going to talk about later, I, I didn't know this at the time, but before you can publish a level, you have to beat it yourself. Mm-hmm. So the guy was on, I think, try. 253 he was he was streaming it to an audience and it was this ridiculous level where there were all these chainsaws and there was like a rope on a track going through the chainsaws but you had to take a koopa shell through everything so you had to keep jumping off the rope and kicking up the koopa shell and catching it and jumping back on the rope and so he finally got to the end of the level and he he's jumping off the rope toward the, the finish tape to end the level, and he forgot about an invisible block that he had put himself right in front of the, the finish tape. 230-whatever so, tries ago. Yes, so he bounced off it and, and died, and it was beautiful. <laughs> it's like a kind of performance art, really, <laughs> I think. Did he eventually go back and finish it? I I assume so. I, I read about it. I did not, I did not watch the yeah. next 200 attempts. <laughs> yeah, some, somehow you had other things to do. Uh, but the game works with... It takes uh, advantage of the Wii U's unique kind of plat, uh, um, tablet controller where you have a little stylus and can drag and drop things on the screen. And it works really nicely in a way that's better than trying to use a traditional directional pad or analog stick to place these things would be. There's a bunch of little fun things you can record, your own little sound effects to put in. Uh, if you have bought into Nintendo's Amiibo things, the little action figures... You can hold them up to your Wii and unlock extra custom blocks and things to use in the game. It's really pretty well thought out. And there's probably hundreds and hundreds of user experience things, decisions that they made as as they put this game together, what the experience would be. And there, I think there's probably been other like unauthorized Mario level editors online for a long time. Uh, uh, yeah. you know, no, nothing that you could then play on a console, but things you could do on your PC and put the blocks into place. Uh, and I imagine that Nintendo had watched those and was well aware of them. And I think they learned a lot of valuable lessons from them and were able to make one that's really quite good. And honestly, even if you never create a game in it, you could just play endless Mario levels and have gotten your money's worth out of it. Because, like you said, there is a way to share them and rate them and see what the most popular ones are. And you can follow people. It's really a fascinating little ecosystem they've put together. But rather than spend six hours talking about every little corner of Super Mario Maker. Uh, I was thinking a lot as I actually hadn't played it for a while, and I picked it back up the other day and started thinking about their um, onboarding process. And so onboarding, have you ever had to train someone new for something? Is oh, I know what onboarding is, Chad. Yeah. 
that's when you give somebody like two gazillion things to read mm-hmm, mm-hmm. all all in one day, and then you introduce them to everybody in your company at the same time, all yes. 300 people. Preferably in a swarm, yeah. And then that person gets done reading all the stuff finally, and then they don't have anything to do, and they wait for their login information to arrive. Yeah, that is so. remarkably <laughs> accurate. I think that, that mirrors... That's it. I think we can end this podcast right now. You've defined it. You've written the book. Uh, but thankfully, Mario Maker does not follow that path. Uh, but but yeah, onboarding, and I'm thinking about this a lot as I have some new student workers starting later this week. So I think I'll just sit them all down and we'll play Mario together. Um, but <laughs> I, frankly, I've been through worse processes. Um, but no, so onboarding at its core is, like like you as you so nicely put it, learning the skills and information necessary to be a productive part of an effort. It's kind of socialization in a lot of ways. And I think this might tie back into some things we talked about in the, the pandemic Um episode of, of how groups work together. Um, but so I've been looking into this as I have new student workers starting. I haven't been a department head for too long. So bringing people up myself is, is a new challenge. And I ended up looking somehow at the Oxford handbook of organizational socialization, which is one wow, of those. That's yeah. pretty intense. Normally this is where I describe it as like a concrete brick of a book, but I was reading the ebook version. So I sadly have no idea how large it actually is. You can't just call um, something a doorstop anymore. That's very yeah, inconvenient. An, an eye doorstop? Is that, <laughs> I don't is that a thing? <laughs> I stop. <laughs> I stop. I like it. Trademark that. Get the URL. But chapter 14 in that book in particular, which in the wonderful sort of borderline puns that the academics use to name things, is called Our Organizations On Board with Best Practices Onboarding. Oh my god. You get it? Are, are you sure you didn't write that? <laughs> Chapter title. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I ghost wrote chapter 14 of the Oxford Handbook of Organizational Socialization. Little known fact. But it goes on about a bunch of things. But a couple of things it mentioned in particular are that at its core, onboarding is about informing, which sounds obvious, but you're providing newcomers with the information, materials, and experiences they need to succeed. And I think that experience part might be what gets overlooked the most in onboarding. Um, in a lot of games, a lot of other experiences, you know, you've got a five minute tutorial at the beginning. And at the end of that, you are presumed to have learned pretty much everything you need to go forth in that game. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes you actually only need to know that you point the gun in a certain direction and you push that button and then the aliens explode. Um, but sometimes there's more nuance to it also. And maybe that's shortchanging players and shortchanging your game design by saying that everything could be communicated, that everything that could possibly be communicated about how to play your game can be fit in those five minutes. And then there might be some advanced concepts that you're expecting people to remember later on, but you're not plugging them into this experience part. You're getting stuck in the, the information and, and materials. And so this chapter did an overview of a lot of other literature in the area and kind of reached a conclusion that temporality is important in the way you do onboarding. So you don't want to do what you described at the beginning. You don't want to just do that information dump and introduce everyone all in one day. That ideally onboarding in whatever context should be spread out over weeks or months and deliver it just in time so that people see the relevance of things as they need them to um, to come up in their daily work. Because then they see the relevance of it, they see how it fits in, uh, and it just is more likely to stick in their brain long term. And they also noted at the end of the chapter in practice, this rarely happens. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, that's a weird way to say never, Chad, but... That, uh... <laughs> <laughs> never, that's academic speak for, for never. We can't rule out that it might have happened somewhere at, at some time. Yeah, that, so that, Mar- that, 
that's a good point because you you're talking about cognitive load a couple episodes ago mm-hmm. and b- dumping everyone on a d- dumping everything on a new hire on the first day is a classic example of ignoring that principle right mm-hmm. I, I usually try to get people to understand it by thinking of uh, you have a pitcher of water and you have a glass and you can keep pouring the water into that glass but it's just gonna make a mess. <laughs> And then you're not the glass the is water. the size that is. <laughs> the glass is the size it is. And, uh, yeah, spreading it out over several weeks then helps people... Because you, you can reduce the amount of stuff that you teach a person, but it's also important to hit that stuff later mm-hmm. on and make sure that they're practicing it and rehearsing it and uh, using it in a way so they don't forget about it. Yeah, and that's probably if there's an advantage to doing it all at once at the beginning, it's that you've got momentum on your side. It's like, this is a new person. We've got our chance to, to teach them, whereas it's much harder to go back. Oh, this is my employee who's been here three months. Now it's time to teach them new things. Well, that part, they're already pretty integrated and do a lot of things. So I think that might be why it's at least one reason why it's more challenging to, to implement that way. Well, that's true. But I guess if you, you extend the explicit time period of their onboarding for longer, that can maybe keep everyone more in the state of that they're supposed to be learning new things and maybe prevent, you know, ingrained bad habits from arising or give you an Mm -hmm. excuse to supplant them if you you find them. And I wonder if part of this is dependent on organizational size also. You know, if if you work in a company of 500 people, there's probably new people starting all the time where you can have kind of a cohort and a process that they get run through. Whereas if you work in a, I don't know, a mom and pop business where it's people have worked there for 30 years and you're the only new person, they're not going to have those kind of structures in place or, or the ability to really create them. Certainly. Uh, so how this fits into Mario Maker is, I mentioned it's a drag and drop interface. You're picking, you know, a block or a Goomba, an enemy, or which blocks you put mushrooms in and you're using a stylus and you're dragging them all around. And I meant to look up exactly how many elements there are that you can use, but it's, let's say it's on the order of 100 different elements that you can use in the game. Uh, all the way down to you know, the pipes and the different rooms they can go to, and um, you know, the fire flowers, all the different power-ups, different enemies, etc., including some odd combinations that never existed in the games. It gets a little weird. You can put thwomps in Mario 1, which if you're a Mario aficionado, you know, they did not show up until... Oh, I'm going to botch this. Oh, like Mario I know the answer. Do you know Mario that? 3? Yes, very yes, good. Yes, all right. I can do, keep do my, you know what level of Mario 3? I, I can keep my street cred. What <laughs> level? Um... Uh, it was the first little castle, right? Oh, really? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> no one cares about this, but I thought it was the desert level. Oh, anyway. you might be right. Yeah, well, Sorry, go on with the more interesting Somebody, Somebody investigate and leave a comment. <laughs> uh, so imagine if you were throwing all these bricks and told, you can create any Mario level you want. Like, that's almost, there's not enough constraints on that. I would be totally lost at that point. Like, I would probably put, I don't know, a million of those spinning fire things in one place just to see what would happen. And then next to that, I'd put, uh, you know, a spike trap that's impossible to get through, which, again, I'm just describing the level you probably described at the beginning. Um, but instead, they they force you with some artificial restrictions to build your way up to that. So when you start, you only have access, the first time you turn on the game, you only have access to about a dozen elements. And they're pretty much the exact elements you would need to create the first level of the original Mario game. So you're restricted to working with that palette. And you build with them, you can play the levels as you go through it, you can upload them, you can still download any level that anybody else has made and see what's possible with the full complement of tools 
But after you've been playing for about, uh, I think it's maybe 15 minutes or so, it's hard to pin down exactly what the triggers are. You get this weird little alert that pops up on your gamepad that says a delivery truck is coming, which is an odd metaphor they chose to go with. And that if you check back the next day, you've unlocked the next set of blocks. Mm -hmm. And so you come back the next day and you've got another set of blocks. And if you play 15 minutes or so that day, the truck shows up again. And the next day you've got another set. And I believe it takes, if you play every day, it takes about nine days to unlock everything as you get in there. So does, does the game tell you those things will be coming if you play it long enough? Like mm-hmm. when you, when you start, it says there's not a lot of stuff here, but play it and we'll give you more stuff. Yes. And you can see all of the empty slots when you start out. So so you know that there is the capacity for these more things, and presumably you can, can get to them somehow. So that probably helps not only with people learning how to use the game, but it probably also motivates them to keep playing as well, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. So I, w- I was referencing a book called The, the Octalysis Framework earlier. Yes. It's actually called Actionable Gamification, and Octalysis is just the model that's used. Anyway, yeah, the, the author there talks about how that's a, a standard gaming practice at least in modern games where you see what is going to come and that incentivizes you to keep on playing and unlock it because you're going to get new abilities right sure yeah that's definitely not uncommon in games i think what struck me about the the mario maker implementation of it is that it's so transparent Um, (laughs) you know there's there's no narrative overlaid on top of that it's there's there's no you know the truck driver is not a character who you have to befriend to get him to bring you new things to use in your level yeah you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> how or long have you been playing <laughs> not enough apparently <laughs> i'm gonna go do that after this or there's no um it's it's not embedded in the fiction somehow it's not like you rescue the princess from the castle and she gives you new things to use in the game well you know what else rem- this reminds me of is uh beginning of a game like skyrim or oblivion have you played I have you played, not, probably I'm... played Fallout, Chad, right? Yes, I played Fallout 3 extensively. So, for those of you who haven't played them, uh, Oblivion, Fallout, Skyrim are all popular games by a studio called Bethesda. And these games often begin with you staring at a screen of a bunch of statistics and trying to figure out which of those statistics you want your character to have before you've even played the game. I think fall I think the more recent Fallout games and even Skyrim have done better with this where you just have to make the look of your character and then you go through kind of a short tutorial level and then based on the actions you take during a tutorial level it kind of suggests what kind of statistics you want like how good you're going to be at shooting guns or how good you're going to be at hacking computers or whatever. Mhm. But I know the, the older games, especially the computer versions of Dungeons & Dragons games like Baldur's Gate, were were really challenging in this regard because you would just be going through all these decisions about all these mechanics that you had no idea what they did. And then you, you did them and your character was set in stone, then you started the game, and then three hours in you realize what stats you really wanted to pick, but it was too late at that point. And then you regret everything. And then you <laughs> Right. <laughs> and then your option is to start all over again knowing what you know now or just proceed and not have to have wasted that time right exactly exactly now naturally so this forces you away to spend time with the tools which i really liked and um i think got me deeper into the level creation set than i would have otherwise i think i personally would have tended to um 
you know, just pick my five or six favorite things and make that kind of level over and over again. But, you know, every day I sat back down with it. No, there's new stuff to play with. Let's let's spend some time with that. And um, but without having it all dumped on me at the same time, I think really improved my experience playing the game. And I won't say it enhanced my creativity. I'm definitely not at the level of some of the stuff I saw shared. But I think I made more creative levels than I would have otherwise. And that kind of got you in the habit of playing the game as well. I imagine mm-hmm. it conditioned you a bit to, to sit down every day and see what your new blocks were. Yeah, that delivery truck was my Pavlovian bell. <laughs> Is it right? It had a weird horn sound effect. It's an, a really odd interface choice, but <laughs> you, to, on you, top of us, really solid concept. Do you salivate whenever you hear the delivery truck horn? <laughs> Gotta go. <laughs> the UPS truck's here. It's bringing me my fire flowers. Uh, but naturally, there is a way to bypass the process that they built in. And this is one of those things that I have no idea how somebody discovered it. But it turns out that if you make giant squares of blocks on the screen over and over and over again, you can unlock the next delivery of stuff in, say, a minute instead of 15 minutes. And you can do it over and over again in one day instead of having to wait the the, the um, once per day limit that's built into the game. Um, there's a there's a copy paste feature in the game, so you essentially, you know, copy a few blocks, paste them into a larger section of blocks, and copy that section of blocks and paste them into and you kind of exponentially grow it out, and then all of a sudden more stuff gets unlocked. It's a, a bizarre. So is it it's like you're causing a, a stack overflow somewhere, or is it an actual debugging tool? Oh, that's a game? good question. I hadn't considered that it could be <laughs> accidental. I don't know. It might be. Um, but and I kind of wish I hadn't discovered that that was an option in there. I feel like it short-circuited that onboarding process a little bit. I I don't think I used it for all nine unlocks, but I used it definitely a time or two to to jump ahead a little bit. Huh. Interesting. You yeah. you went to the dark side of Mario Maker. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Down the pipe. <laughs> and and it's not just the elements you work with actually. So you know, in Mario games, traditionally, you find a pipe, you go down it, and then into a whole different area of the level. You That ability in creating levels is locked until pretty late in the process. I think it might be one of the things you get to. So it forces you to uh, build more linear levels first before getting into that kind of branching logic of, of how things can be set up. And before you know it, you're an expert. Well, maybe not me, but some people are experts at, at the end of that process. So if there's takeaways from this, I think it's avoid info dumps. In, the gen- in general. Nobody reads the manual if it even exists in games anymore. Uh, when's the last time you bought a game with a manual? Out of curiosity. Well, that raises a question of when's the last time I bought a physical game. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> um, I mean, the, I guess the irony is I still like to have... I guess I buy you know, like a DS or a Vita, a PS Vita game. Mm-hmm. Right? For the portable, and, yeah. And even though I'm probably not going to read the manual, I still want it to have a nice one because I guess that's what I grew up with was these you know, very nice, elaborate, colorful manuals. Is that like collecting the album art in a, a vinyl? Yeah, yeah, release? I think so. Yeah. And Mario Maker does actually come with, I wouldn't call it a manual, it's more like a concept art kind of thing, but they still they use it to highlight some game design decisions in some interesting ways. If I can find a link to it, I'll add it to the show notes. Um, but in general, nobody reads the manual if it even exists anymore and you need to kind of build these uh, onboarding processes into your game into your training into your website into whatever your your product is that you're trying to walk someone through the features of mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and i think and we've talked some about other games onboarding processes already you know the fallout and um skyrims of the world i'm trying to think if any other examples of particularly good or bad onboarding 
stick out to me. Well, one thing that I was thinking about is how games will always give you tutorials for the beginning, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I I don't know that I can think of a game that will then, after you've mastered, okay, move left analog stick to walk, later in the game when you're learning the advanced concepts, I can't think of a game that'll give you a tutorial for how to, you know, progress even further into the advanced nuances of the game. So it's all done up front and focused on the basics for the most part. Right, and then... And I guess this happens more in multiplayer games where, you know, everyone is trying to be the the best at the game. So you have to really go down this very detailed rabbit hole of nuance. And like, for example, in I was playing Dark Souls recently, and there's just so much to understand about the player versus player combat and how much the weapons weigh and how fast they are and which ones make you invincible for a brief period of time that you would never in a million years figure out unless you went to a wiki somewhere and then read mm-hmm. tons and tons of forum posts, right? And just as a thought experiment, what, what would Dark Souls be like if you got kind of a tutorial once you got to the end of the game and started moving into the multiplayer what if dark souls tried to teach you how to you know play multiplayer better Mm -hmm. yeah that would change the entire experience not just for you but for the people you're playing against also or or would that you know just create a new level for the playing field and then there would be an even you know higher level that you would have to to research oh yeah maybe because you would would then assume everybody had that basic competency gets back to that temporality issue of not necessarily putting it all at the beginning of stretching it out over time and at, at the point of need so things can can sink in a little bit more thanks oxford handbook of whatever you were um, well i've i've also played games where i'm oh, sorry i'm going to reference dark souls again that's please <laughs> i'm really going to need to play it one of these days we're trying to make a podcast that will appeal to everybody and I, <laughs> i'm referencing one of the more niche titles out there but but some games then will will have you learn all the controls and then you won't have to use the certain control until like 20 hours into the game and you totally forget that it exists and you're totally stuck cuz i got i got to this the the very first Dark Souls, like you know, I went through the tutorial, I learned that, you know, this swings, this swings harder, this rolls, and then I think fifteen, twenty hours into the game I get to this ledge and there's a ledge on the other side across a gap, and I just had no idea how to get across the gap mm-hmm. because I'd never had to use the jump button <laughs> <laughs> in the first twenty hours of the game. <laughs> so I was, you know, literally stymied by this thing that I never had to use until that point. So what did you do at that point? Well, fortunately, it was uh, it was an optional area that I didn't actually have to jump across to to progress. I just kept on going, and I think I think it wasn't until very near the end of the game where you actually literally have to to jump at a certain time to to beat a boss. And I spent I think three or four hours on this one simple boss until. I think I I accidentally pressed the jump button because I was at the point that (laughs) I was just button mashing because it was about as effective as me trying to do something on purpose. So how would you feel, I might be getting sidetracked a little bit here, but in something like Dark Souls, which kind of prides itself on being a difficult game, uh, if, you know, a little thing popped up that said, you know, it maybe programmatically noticed you have not jumped in the last six hours and some kind of reminder might pop up and says, hey, did you know you could jump? Uh, yeah, I feel like I've played games that have done something like that. 
Yeah. I'm trying to think of what they were, but I, I, I do think that that is an effective way to kind of monitor button inputs like that. I can't think of a good example at the moment, though. But what about applying that to the context of Dark Souls, which is supposed to be difficult? Like, that's its kind of reason for existing. Does that undermine the experience? Well, yes. Well, I think it was a point you had raised maybe a couple episodes ago where sometimes games are supposed to be hard to understand, right? And that's what gives mm-hmm. you pleasure when you finally understand them. And could that could that relate to, you know, a training experience as well, where you make something intentionally obscure? Um, well, I, I, don't, I think that there's good difficulty and bad difficulty, right? I feel like bad difficulty is, you know, giving you a mechanic and then you have to use it exactly once, 30 hours into the game. Um, that yeah, that's more like of a, a design issue than a mechanic issue, I think. Right. I mean, it's another thing if you have, have been having to use that mechanic throughout the game and the challenge isn't you remembering all the different things your buttons do, but, you know, applying them in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes a lot of sense. So before I close, my favorite little kind of user experience tidbit that they took into account in designing Mario Maker, and you, you, which you mentioned briefly earlier, was the requirement that before you can upload a level and share it, you have to be able to finish it. I love that because it guarantees it kind of enhances the challenge in a way like w- without that requirement I might download a really difficult level and just say oh that's impossible there's no way I could ever do that but knowing that some out there somewhere the person who designed it was able to get through it on their 300 and whatever th- try um, just makes it all the more infuriating and kind of plausible at the same time as you go through those levels I, I love that they put those requirements on it it's not something I ever would have thought of and I don't think I've seen it done elsewhere. Well, that's a very elegant way. That's an extremely mm-hmm. elegant way of solving the problem of there being garbage levels. Yeah. Well, there's still garbage levels. Okay. Right. Well, <laughs> a certain type of garbage, right? Yeah. Like, imagine if... <laughs> imagine if to post something on Facebook, you first had to record your comment and send it to your mom. <laughs> oh, my God. I love it. <laughs> Like, <laughs> so, oh, I want what, to live in that world. What would happen to the level of discourse on on Facebook, right? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> or or your children, or or something. You've There's, you've blown my mind here. <laughs> I'm sure someone has a, a name for for that <laughs> principle. But. I think we'll call it the Carper effect. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and now that my mind has been blown, I think I'll end it there. So you've been listening to Gamification Unlocked. I'm Chad Hayfley. And I'm Brandon Carper. Please rate us on iTunes. It really does help, or your podcast app of choice. You can find us on Twitter at Unlocking Games and on the web at unlockinggames.com. And please, if you have a minute, feel free to tweet us or leave a comment on a post on the site. Let us know what you thought of the episode. And if you've seen any interesting ways of handling onboarding, either in the gaming world or elsewhere. Until next time, it's your move. <laughs> <laughs>